Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Senior Strength and Conditioning Specialist at High Performance Sport New Zealand, Angus Ross. So today's guest on the Pacey Performance Podcast is one of those people who I absolutely love to talk to, and it's them practitioners who have one camp, one foot in the camp of the performance specialist, of the strength and conditioning coach, but they also have one foot firmly in research and academia, and I think that balance is super, super important. It's something that I spoke to Robin Thorpe about in a previous episode, and it really comes through in this episode with Angus, the depth of knowledge that he has, not only as a strength and conditioning coach, but as an academic as well. So in this episode, we dive deep into eccentric training, and anyone that's read any of Stuart McMillan's work I think it's MacmillanSpeed.com, will know of Angus because he featured a couple of times in that talking about um, eccentric training. So not only do we dive into eccentric training, we dive into acceleration principles, uh, coaching acceleration for team sport athletes and track and field athletes as well. So like I say, one camp, one foot in the camp of strength and conditioning coach, one foot in the camp of academic and researcher just makes for such a, the depth of, of, of knowledge and an and absolutely unbelievable episode. So I'm going to hand over to Angus, but I know you'll absolutely love this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Perch. Perch is velocity-based training made easy and built for the 21st century. So engineered at MIT, Perch uses compact 3D cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. So Perch passively collects velocity and power data, outputs it in real time to athletes and stores it for post-workout analysis. So Perch is the revolutionary and innovative product that enhances workouts, reduces injuries, and most importantly, saves time. Perch works with every level of organization from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team, the NFL's New York Giants, military bases, high schools, performance facilities, and even individual home gyms to name just a few. So Perch is portable, easy to install and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more wearables, no more broken strings. Set Perch once, optimize every rep, every set and every training session. For exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash contact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. 
This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Angus Ross. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Angus Ross. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for uh, thank you for giving up your time. And yeah, it's a pleasure to speak to you. It's been a long time coming. You've Not that you know but you've been on my list to contact and stalk for a long time. Okay. But uh, I'm glad, glad, to, glad to finally line it up. Yeah, very it's, good. Uh, it's, a pleasure to, it's a pleasure to chat to you. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, Angus, do you want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, education-wise, and what you're currently doing over in New Zealand? Yep. Um, so I'm working um, with High Performance Sport New Zealand. I, I did a – my sort of interest areas have been uh, in – Sort of speed and power. I was a I was a pretty low level track and field athlete when I was doing that back in the day, and then I had an opportunity to do bobsleigh, uh, which I did for a number of years, and so it sort of sparked this. Well, not sparked, but it facilitated my interest in uh, speed, power, uh, acceleration, etc. So it sort of there was a synergy between my sporting aspirations and um, I did an undergrad degree in New Zealand and or double degree in. in um, physiology and uh, physical education and then subsequently went to Australia to do some postgrad and uh, ended up doing a um, the world's longest PhD in, um, in exercise physiology looking at sprint training and detraining. Um, so that was kind of my path and I was, at the same, I was sort of doing that part-time while I was working um, in Queensland Academy of Sport and I was also training to do bobsleigh. Um, so I was doing too many things at once and doing none of them particularly well, one would argue. Um, and then, yeah, so then I've worked in that Australian Institute system for a while. I went, subsequently went down to the Australian Institute of Sport for a couple of years. And since 2005, I've been back in New Zealand and uh, working within our, you know, the equivalent system, I guess, uh, in terms of that, um, you know, state-funded um, elite elite sport system, largely working with... Um, yeah, speed power events. I've got. I actually work with one one rower currently, which has been a, a sort of a left field um, pursuit for me, which has been kind of interesting. But yeah, mostly track and field currently. And you know, we, we focus in New Zealand. Our our major stream of of um, success, I guess, in recent years has been in the throws. So I'm working several throwers, um, but also have a, a young guy that I'm helping out a little bit in the sprints and, and a 400 hurdler and a few other randoms. But um, yeah. That's kind of uh, where I'm sitting at the moment. Nice. Why did the PhD take so long? Uh, just because I was doing it part-time and trying to train. Okay. I, I went to a couple of Olympics during my PhD um, and 
I was working uh, probably 20-something hours a week at Queensland Academy of Sport and trying to do a PhD. It was a, it was a bit ridiculous in hindsight. I used to go, I used to get up in the morning, train, train these <clears throat> athletes, then I would train myself, and then I'd sit down at my desk to do my PhD at about 3 o'clock and fall asleep at my desk. It was my, my pretty normal routine. So, um, so, you, so, you, so you're an athlete? Oh, you, were an, you were an athlete, you were coaching and doing a PhD at the same time? Okay. <laughs> didn't, didn't work particularly well. Um, so hence it took me a long time. Yeah. 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 No, that's really interesting. And I was speaking to like, like we said beforehand, I was speaking to Paul Gamble and didn't realize you were working with the, um, with some, uh, throwing athletes as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's something we can, we can yeah. definitely dive into. Yeah. What, what were you like as an athlete? Obviously you went to Olympics. So you, I was pretty, you know, to be honest, I, I was, I, I tried to do decathlon. I have got almost zero hip mobility, couldn't hurdle, couldn't do a lot of things. Um, and so, but I was, I was, I was pretty excited about it. I loved it um, and just didn't have the abilities that went along with my um, desires, I guess. And uh, Bob say was a second life. I was, I was, I could always accelerate okay. I could always had the ability to gain strength. Uh, power was okay. Um, and I had the second opportunity of Bob say somebody shoulder tapped me and said, hey, do you want to try this? Um, I was going nowhere in athletics and um it was a second life, if you like. I was kind of, I had these high level aspirations, but without high level ability. And uh, Bob say gave me an opportunity to stick in the game a little bit longer, and um, and it probably suited what I did have um, a little bit better. And and in saying that, I, I wasn't particularly great at Bob say either. But I, you know, we had some guy, good guys in our in our crew, and and you know, like I had, um, I had a few things that were, were, were you know okay, but but I. Um, I would actually like to train myself now. Knowing what I know now, I would have liked to train myself uh, then. There's some things I could have done a lot better, to be fair. So, um, well, that that was my next question. Was was the fact that you were doing your PhD, so you dive into the research, you're coaching, so you're hands on the ground with athletes, and you're an athlete yourself. Yeah. Look, Did all that kind of that little trifecta help, or, well, or it's, not? It certainly helped um, me become a better coach um, in terms of understanding things at a, at a, at a, at a some level of depth and and. Not being the, the biggest natural talent in the world, also in hindsight has probably been advantageous that things didn't come easily. I had to work for everything I got. It felt like, um, you know, I wasn't the natural guy that came out and run ten five and the hundred. That just wasn't what I had, and you know, so um, having to grind that stuff and you know, my, my ability was shit. My, you know, this is bad, and this is, you know, so I had I had to sort of find, um, you know, what what are the um, first principles that I need to take care of. To, to elicit these responses and um, yeah, it's been a really good journey and, 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 I, and I sort of, I, not, I wouldn't change it. I would have liked to have been better, obviously. I think we probably all would say that in their own athletic careers, but um, yeah, it was certainly worthwhile in the long term and it's helped me be better at what I do now, which is probably what I was um, destined to do rather than um, being the superstar athlete that I desired to be, um, which just wasn't to be. Yeah. Nice. Mm. So we, we spoke beforehand about your job title. And maybe that you don't fit in a particular specific area. Yeah. The physiologist, S and C. Yep. Can you talk just a little bit around that and why that might be the case over yeah. there? So so I did um I did my postgraduate registration and my PhD was a sort of ex exercise physiology, physiology slash motor control um PhD. Uh, so I had area interested in that. I was working in a strength and conditioning role with the Queensland Academy of Sport. Um, obviously, Bob says a speed power based event. So I had all these sort of strengths to my bow. I got employed initially as a physiologist at um, once I left QAS. I got employed as a physiologist at AIS. Um, 
And I found, I found that a little frustrating that I didn't have the hands on. You're just testing. You're not really doing. Um, I, I like the coaching aspect of it as well. So I sort of started dabbling in, in coaching strength and conditioning while I was there as well. Um, and yeah, look, I, I just I just found that I, I wasn't. Um, I didn't didn't pigeonhole very easily. And then coming back to New Zealand, I had a role which was jack of all trades, master of none initially in terms of looking at, um, I, I was coaching, I was doing S&C, I was doing the testing uh, in a very small setup down in Dunedin. Uh, and yeah, and then I, I sort of, you know, as you get older, you um, get, get shoulder tapped for different roles and I, I sort of carried up the chain and, a little bit and I've sort of worked up to my level of incompetence, I suppose, with the, um, <laughs> you know, you get into this administration stuff and I realised, um, and I was I was kind of a leading uh, physiology, S&C and Sort of the biomechanics streams of our high performance arm, and that was my role a couple of years ago. And I um, I realised I hated it. I was sitting all day in meetings and <clears throat> wasn't doing the, the stuff that I was actually good at. And I'm you know I'm pretty much allergic to administration anyway. So I I, I kind of so I've, I've actually taken two steps down the sort of the hierarchy ladder um, to be actually just working hands on again. Uh, and I'm much happier for it. So um, yeah, you, you know you got to know your strengths and. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's certainly just just going further further up to 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 um to climb the ladder, corporate ladder, if, if you like. It wasn't um wasn't working out for me. It's really interesting that because I spoke to so many coaches who have made that transition into high performance manager roles, high performance director roles, and how difficult that is to hand over responsibility and not want to get yeah. involved all the time and, and 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 sit back and and like you say, manage and lead and be in meetings with stakeholders and head coaches and all that kind of stuff and how, yeah. how difficult that is. So it's interesting that you've done it and then gone, nah, and then gone been, the other way. I would have been strung up by my neck by around a tree somewhere if I'd been doing that <laughs> another two years, I think. So um yeah. So let, let's have a little chat around the this, this stuff that we'd, that we'd planned, which I think is going to be really interesting for people. Mm -hmm. So eccentric training has been one, I suppose, modality, that, an, an area that you've become really well known for. Firstly, why, why that area? How did you fall into that area and get so interested in it? Yeah, well, I guess it's what we've talked about already in terms of um, the bobsleigh area kind of thing. I guess that it was, there was, a, it was an element to that. Um, where you know speed and power is paramount. You know the, the push time is this, is this key factor in bobsleigh, um, and I probably didn't have the gifts naturally that I would have desired. So you know I was looking for ways to be better, and and one of the things I part of my PhD was looking at um, muscle muscle and muscle transitions and fiber type and bits and pieces, and and one of the things that that came up is a guy in the lab that I was at, at University of Queensland. He did a uh, a study using um, a, a King Kong or a Cybex, I can't remember what it was at the time, but it was a, and he, he did this eccentric training study. And I, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the, the fiber type literature from, this is, you know, 20, 30 years ago now, but um, the, the, basically the literature said, you do strength training, you, you actually compromise fiber type, you, you turn your two Bs into two As, uh, and there's this bi-directional shift towards this more fatigue resistant, fast twitch muscle, I suppose. But it doesn't have the same unloaded shortening velocity as the two two B or the two X myosin, so so that's problematic. Um, anyway, long story short, this guy Doug Patton Jones in, in the lab, who was who was a mate of mine, uh, he he did the study, and he got the complete opposite result. And he did this fast eccentric um, study, uh, Patton Jones et al. two thousand and one. If anybody wants to look that up, um, but he. he 
he, he did this fast eccentric study and he had 180 degrees per second. I think it was a bicep study. Um, or, or 60 degrees per second or um, maybe a contract. I can't, can't remember what the control group was. But anyway, long story short, um, the fast eccentric group um, had a shift towards you know 2B muscle. And I'm, and I'm like, come on, Doug, you made that data up. This, is, this, <laughs> this doesn't happen. And, you know, we had a good relationship and, and I was, it was probably over a couple of beers one day I would be giving him a bit of, bit of stick about it. And anyway, as it turned out, he said, well, you'd think that, but this was double blind. I didn't even do the tissue analysis. I sent the tissue analysis away to another lab. They did it, came back double blind, and this is the result. And so as a result of that, I put quite a lot of stock in that paper. Um, and it was kind of, okay, interesting. You can make this shift. It's, it's one of these unique stimuluses that can make the shift towards the faster myosin. So, okay, that's, so that's point one. I suppose that's, that's one thing. Perhaps you can change the inherent um, you know, f- physiology of the muscle. The second thing, I guess, with, with, um, and which relates to that, is it's the only stimulus where you can combine um, high velocity and high force. You know, I'm sure we're all aware of the force velocity curve and how at higher speeds you get this diminishing <clears throat> ability to apply force. And with eccentric training, you know, it's the opposite of that. At high speeds, you can apply high force. And, you know, and, and it's even more dramatic when you look at it in terms of power. You know, the eccentric powers you can develop are ridiculous uh, because you're combining high force with high speed. So that makes it this, you know, this incredibly unique stimulus for, for not only muscle, but in terms of um, just the stress you're providing, which you have these downstream effects in terms of um, the adaptations you get. So, um, and so I guess just to preface that, what I look at is eccentric training. I'm, I'm not a... Um, a big proponent. I know a lot of people, and, and there are reasons for this stuff, and I don't, I'm not bagging it at all. But I'm not a big proponent of, you know, the the same weight concentrically and eccentrically, but you just you do ten seconds down on the eccentric phase type stuff. I don't really see that as you know eccentric training. Um, in, in my um, in my mind, it's just it's it's another mode of you know, um, yeah, it's almost it's somewhere between isometric and, and hypertrophy type of sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking of eccentrics in my mind as an overloaded, um, preferably um, moderate to high velocity eccentrically, um, is is the stimulus I'm trying to find to elicit these these sort of um, power and, and you know muscle adaptations and uh, and even and you can get you know the fascicle length stuff which is also an additive effect on the contraction velocity. Um, some papers would suggest that you add sarcomeres in series and you get this longer fascicles and. So, so there's a, there's a number of wins, I suppose, in terms of the the fascicle length, the fiber type, uh, and just this, this the force and, and the and the resilience you're, you're giving the muscle by giving it this eccentric stress. And so, um, yeah, look, I, I think it's a, it's a cool stimulus. It's, it's not um, it's not the only thing. It's not the be all and end all. It's just it's just another tool in your toolbox. And I sort of a couple of people have sort of said to me, "Oh, you're, you're this eccentric guy." So I'm not an eccentric guy. I'm just <laughs> this is just the thing I use, you know, and. Um, you know, I think it's useful. So yeah, yeah, I guess that's my um my thing. I mean, and I guess the, the red flags with eccentric training, you know, you get this enormous amount of muscle damage potentially if you push the boat out too hard. Um, so you need you need to know when you're going to use it. You need to know what the time course of adaptation. Um, you, you need to know that you may follow it with a period of depression of of the the um the contractile characteristics because there's going to be you know all this all this damage that's occurring. Um, so, so look, I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I like it. I think it's really good. Um, but you can also, yeah, in the short term, really make it turn an athlete, um, down, regulate their ability. You know, we've got, 
some one of our shot putters who who's used it regularly. Um, you know, we've we've turned a you know, twenty two plus meter shot putter into a you know eighteen meter shot putter in a few in a week. Um, you know, it's, which doesn't go down all that well with the coaching staff, um, obviously. Um, but but it's, it's you know you need to play the long game and 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 you know that that's um, we now know what we can get away with and not get away with in terms of. Um, and we've still we still overcooked it. We've probably overcooked it in the last year with the lockdown and bits and pieces that we haven't got it right. So we're always learning. Um, but yeah, look, I think it's um, it's it's a good thing. And I, I guess the, the final thing I'd say with eccentric stuff is, you know, just in terms of the um, the performance characteristics, we know that better performers tend to hit, you know, and when they when they strike the ground, whether they're running or jumping, they tend to shorten their eccentric phase because they've got this enormous eccentric strength. And they might spend the same amount of time on the ground, but they're more of it is into force application rather than force absorption because they've got this great eccentric strength. So in performance terms, being eccentrically strong um, throughout your chain um, you know, is, is clearly beneficial. So loads of questions off the back of that. But while, while we're here, and it was something that we're going to get into later regards to programming, but while we're yep. here, we might as well tackle it. Yep. So when you say use it, we use it with our... Uh, with our throwers, mm-hmm. when when you say that, what what does it actually look like? What kind of exercise we're programming? What where does it fit into the into the wider program? And and secondly, off the back of that, how did you overcook it? Oh, uh, look, we've yeah, we've well, one of our throwers works. He's he's a um, he's a elite thrower, and he he um, he likes working. You know, he's you know farm background. You know, knows how to work, and he's he's resilient and. He just eats eats the stuff up, but at times, um, just by doing too much work, too little recovery, um, you can put people in a real hole. And so initially, we used to I used to do it. I used to program these sort of quite long, you know, not maybe three week blocks of of eccentric, of, of slow eccentric training, then fast eccentric training, then then periodize it into sort of the more um, ballistic training and um, you know tapers sort of stuff and. And we've varied it significantly over the years, um, and, I, and I, I'm yet to know that we've got it right. But um, we now we now just have one week blocks of these these two of these phases because it's it's too depressive, um, and we, re, we 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 have a sort of four week cycle with which we recycle on on a four week rotation um, in the preparatory period, and so you, you'll have some. Um, Heavy eccentric loading for the first couple of weeks in the block, and then the second two weeks will be more recovery based, um, more high speed contractions, and then revisit the eccentric stuff. And so, so it's, it's kind of it's bastardized from you know Louis Simmons uh, triphasic training, whatever. We've, we've you know I've pinched, big borrowed, and stolen from whoever, uh, and and then mixed it with our own um, IP, I suppose. And so, so the initial. Um, the initial couple of weeks with the eccentric training, we'll have everything in there from, um, you know, partner-assisted push-down type stuff. We've got a couple of motorized devices now that which can help give us the high-speed um, eccentric contractions. We use the, you know, the, the, the flywheel type stuff, the, the exafly or K-Box or, or whatever sort of device you're using in that space. Um, we use, um, what else do we use? Um, you know, just a standard two up, one down on on, on a different exercise. Um, you know, like a so so your um, so there's yeah there's a number of ways you can you can elicit um, an, an overloaded eccentric. Um, I do like um, being able to control the speed, and most of that you know you either have to do you know you can do like a um, 
you can do some partner stuff, some of the altitude drop stuff is, is this high speed stuff with, with big peak forces. Um, but the machine driven, motor driven stuff, which is expensive, obviously, and, and not available to everybody, um, is probably is, is probably a good thing to have in there from time to time. And there are, you know, there are all sorts of devices in that space. There are, um, you know, pneumatic sort of concentrically pump up, then gravity loaded down. Uh, so pneumatic assistance. There are um, eccentric bikes. There are, um, you know, I've seen a couple of other devices. We don't have these, but a couple of other devices with um, just just motor driven levers. So you might be doing a kind of a leg press with motor driven levers. Which I've tried. tried. Um, I actually visited the. Um, group in uh taiwan a few years ago we had that um have you seen that pat- passive squatting device um it's, it's on youtube actually pa- passive a uh, passive leg press they call it but it's passive squatting i reckon but it's a um it's uh yeah quite an interesting it's, it's kind of like a vibration plate that moves through 20 centimeters um and yours you've got an isometric bar and you and that's a great device too i, I actually loved it when I, I tried it over there and they've, they've got some really interesting results that are published um I could actually send you the link to some of those papers if you like uh, in that space in terms of stretch shortening cycle performance and um, you know, power speed athletes. And the guy there said to me, I think Taiwan at the time, this was, I don't know how many years ago this was, this might have been five or six years ago. At the time, they'd had two or three Olympic gold medalists and they'd all trained on this device. And they're all in, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, and not to say that was causative, but, but still interesting. Um, yeah. So how does the adaptation from the flywheel differ from something that's that where you can control the speed? Um, yeah, don't know. I don't know that the actual answer to that. I mean, obviously, when you're training, you've got you're throwing a whole lot of things into the mix, and um, mm, of course. So look, uh, the flywheel training is interesting. We do a lot of it with a partner-assisted flywheel training, so that um, you can get the motor. There's some, now there's some motor-driven devices as well. So you, because. You know, obviously, you're not. So, so, sorry, Angus. Just ex- explain that for us. So, partner assisted on the flywheel. So, so if somebody, let's say somebody's doing a row with on a on a on a you know on a flywheel. So that I would, you know, if I've got one of my throwers, I would be helping them pull it out, and then they're having to break it on the way back in. Um, and so that's kind of yeah, that's kind of adds this really um, high stimulus to it because you know you're not. It's, it's, a, it's a yo-yo essentially. You're not actually adding energy to the system. It just gives you this high peak force if you really try and stop it quickly. Um, so if, if you add energy to this, because they're, they're pulling energy into it, and you know we're taking it back. So, it's, so unless you add further energy, you're not actually overloading throughout the whole range of the eccentric stimulus. So you know I like these devices they have now. Like um, we, we've done a bit of work with with Exify New Zealand, the New Zealand company that's it's making uh, a version of of this sort of um, yo-yo type device and. Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's a pretty cool stimulus. The, the things with these devices too is um, you can do it in multiple planes. You can do you know rotating movements with it. You can do um, squatting movements with it. You can do pushing movements with it. You can do pulling movements with it. You can do side bend movement. You can do whatever the hell you like, and you know, which 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 makes them you know in some ways superior to some of these machines. That you know, if you have a, a passive squatting device uh, or you know this eccentric squatting device, okay, what can you do on that? You can do squatting. Uh, you can, maybe you can do single leg squatting. Um, so, so this is I, I like that that flexibility of those things. And, and I guess the other thing, um, <clears throat> being from New Zealand, um, back in the days when international travel was a thing, um, we used to you, you can you can put a you can put one of these devices in your in your bag, and you can travel to the states, and we can do um, training, in, you know, because in New Zealand with Southern Hemisphere, where you know. All our international competition 
is in our winter. Um, so people travel a lot. Um, and you go to some random gym in the middle of the States that, you know, doesn't have all the things you want, where you pull your, your, your device out, you strap it to the squat rack and you, away you go. Um, and so we've been able to take advantage of that and uh, feel very lucky to have been, um, yeah, supported to some extent by, by Exafly in that space to, to do, um, to, to use these pieces of equipment and, and help pioneer some of their kit um, because, um, yeah, we've got some big, strong athletes that break things and um, you know, they've had to go back to the drawing board a couple of times, and um, which is cool as well. So, What's it, like, Exafly? Exafly. Exafly. E R F L Y. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, nice. So yeah, like um, I like it when kids break things. It means we're um, we're doing something right in my mind. So we've had, um, well, yeah, one of our throws has broken our uh, some of our motor driven devices a couple of times, and that's like happy days. We're doing something. <laughs> yeah, you, you produce. Send it back. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So um, still in the warranty. Yeah, all good. Yeah. So when it comes to when it comes to programming these this eccentric work, does that differ between? athletes i mean i know you're working with track and field but you work potentially working with other speed yep. and power athletes as well how does that if so i know that's a big question there's a lot of variation in there probably yeah but how does that differ yeah look it's it's, it's i'm lucky i don't i don't work with big squads i work with individuals which probably makes you know make i'm very lucky in that space and i, and I know that and uh so we can i can make a mistake and spend the next day changing it for that person on the next session and, and uh rather than you know they want a 30 and we just go through and this is what we do um, so yeah, it definitely differs between individuals, people that are, um, you know, some people I've got, I've got two, two shop builders in New Zealand that I've, that I've done work with in times. And one of them is, um, off the charts, explosive, um, like ridiculous, um, set multiple world junior records, um, as any, and he, but the interesting thing is, and the other one is, is not, is still explosive, not quite as explosive as that, um, bigger work capacity, um, and can produce enormous eccentric force. This other, the other one. So he's a sort of probably doesn't have the, the, the contractile stuff as good as the you know um, the explosive guy, but his um, his stretch shortening cycle stuff is brilliant. You know he, he can do he can load load tissue eccentrically, absorb it, and pop. Uh, so they yeah they're just different. And the the guy that has this amazing concentric explosive power um, is pathetic eccentrically in relative terms. You know despite having you know, bigger lift numbers and all these other things. Um, so, yeah, um, one will tolerate, can tolerate and uses it and likes it. One doesn't like it. Uh, it's not his thing. Um, so, yeah, you, you just have to adapt and, and, and put in, um, you know, what they can tolerate. And, and, and some of the explosive guys can't tolerate any, anywhere near as much as, as some of the others. Some that are probably slightly less explosive. But um, so, so, yeah, look, I don't, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. Um, I guess in female athletes as well, I've got some female throwers. Um, it, it's the same pattern, but I, I guess you know. There's, there's, in terms of the published literature, there's, there's this stuff that shows there's a protective effect of estrogen, and, and that they have um, that perhaps recover and don't get the same damage uh, as some of the male athletes. But that said, um, you know, one of one of my female throwers uh, is really explosive, and uh, she, she certainly uh, certainly cooks her. We don't do ridiculous volumes of it um, with her either because it just um, I just we get too much in trouble from the technical coaches that they can't throw for a week. So um, and and I don't think it's worth it. Like you know, all of these things are a balance. We're not. It's not about making somebody a better gym athlete. It's about making somebody a better athlete. And uh, you know, I think we we can never lose sight of of that in, in my role. That that um, 
better gym numbers don't mean anything. Better throwing distance or better speed or better whatever else is the only thing that matters. And so um, we're just a part of that. We're a small cog in that in that wheel to, to sort of help facilitate that. Pardon my ignorance here, but that study that you mentioned, was it in 2000? The Patton Jones one? The, the, the bicep, yeah, the bicep. Yeah, 2000, 2000, 2001, one or the other, in that era okay. anyway, yeah. Has yeah. that been replicated since? Um, not directly. And, and, and the funny thing is nobody's tried it in that quite as tight a fashion as that. Um, I know there's a group um, talking about doing it at the moment, um, but no, it hasn't. And there's, there's been a few studies which have shown uh, preferential hypertrophy of um, – of you know the sort of the two 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 b two two a stuff as as opposed to type one with eccentric training, um, but it hasn't been replicated. Um, but nobody's tried directly, as far as I can see, in terms of that tight um, methodology. Um, so yeah, look, yeah, hard to know, hard to know. I mean, certainly there's there's a, there's a paper. Um, who was it? It's from Jim Martin's lab in um, in the states uh, that did eccentric bike. Uh, he was he's been a big proponent of the eccentric bike and they've done a couple of studies there and and um you know and they were doing optimal cadence which is a um on on the on a uh, inertial erg which has been a um which we've used a little bit too but um we do use um and one of the, one of the early studies a howtier paper in i think 96 maybe they they used uh they 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 correlated fiber type and optimal cadence and this is a bit of a drawn out story, but the, the, the um, sorry, <laughs> the so it's a quasi non invasive metric to, to assess fiber type, you could say. Um, now, if you um, if you do some eccentric training and then you have a period of rest, and you might get a shift towards uh, a faster optimal cadence, does that mean better fiber type? Possibly, uh, probably. Um, so you look know, as you know in sport, it's it's, it's quite hard to um, be definitive of, um, and it frustrates a lot of people. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm not going to give too many straight answers, probably, but um, you need to um, understand the, the the context and, and the lay of the land with that stuff. That um, training is a melting pot of a million different things, and um, what was the cause and effect of this? Well, don't know. Um, it seemed to help, but so I did these other five things at the same time. You know how it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, you mentioned the having influence from Cal Dietz and and triphasic training. That brings me on to the next question, which was, how is it integrated, and how do you program it in and around isometric training? Is it yep um, complementary to iso- the, the isometric yeah, training that you do? It's a good question, and, and again, it's not going to be um, a, a definitive answer. I, I don't have, I don't, I'm not as um, systematic as Cal Dietz probably in, in the way he does. I, I'm trying. Like, I went and did some some um, some PD with a guy called Jerome Simeon in, in in France. Who I'm not sure he's he's another one you should interview actually if you haven't if you haven't already. Um, so say again. Say the name. Jerome Simeon in France, okay. French guy. <clears throat> Very smart, capable guy. He's the he's the um, the physical preparation guy behind Kevin Meyer, the decathlon world record holder. Um, okay. He's got, he's got a couple of other um, rock star athletes there. Um, Milena Robert Michon, who's the Discus Silvermillis from Rio, um, trained out of this this little basement at the bottom of the. It's it's unbelievable. Like you go there and you go, wow, facilities aren't the thing. People are the thing. This guy's he's good at what he does. But anyway, one of his things was, um, and I've always liked this line, and it seems so simplistic. And at the time, I was like, what the hell does that mean? But you know, I said, well, how do you how do you? Because he was periodized. He does isometrics and all these other bits and pieces as well. I said, well, how do you periodize that? 
And he kind of looked at me blankly like I was a complete idiot, which I probably was and probably still am. <laughs> um, but he said, I give them what they need. And it's like, huh, which makes <laughs> so much sense. And so, so going back to that, you know, if you look at the isometric training, what does that elicit? Well, it depends how you do the isometrics for a start. And so if you do um, a ballistic one second, boom, you know, isometric into a bar, um, you're gonna, it's, it's almost like a plyometric in terms of this is high speed, high, high RFD. <clears throat> um, you're eliciting this, um, these tenderness adaptations perhaps that are, um, you're, you're, um, you're trying to, you're making a stiffer, a stiffer setup. If you do a long duration isometric, which is, you know, maybe a quasi eccentric over, you know, the, the sort of extreme ISOs that sort of been popularized by, by a few different people, um, you're probably, you know, breaking down some of these crosslinks and, and the tenderness and or fascial matrix that you have and and making a, um, a more compliant tender, maybe slightly more stiffer muscle perhaps, but you're, you're changing the, the setup of, of what you've got. So um, so to answer your question, like if you're doing high-speed eccentrics, um, I d wouldn't tend to do ISOs at the same time because you're eliciting, you know, slow ISOs or long duration ISOs at the same time because you're probably eliciting a different adaptation. Um, but if you're a guy that has, um, you know, let's say you get groin injuries from throwing, which are reasonably common, um, then maybe you would do um, fast eccentrics for some of your upper body stuff at the same time as you're doing some, um, you know, ISOs or, or, lot, or long duration slow stuff um, for your groin, for example. Um, so I, I do do a little bit, when I do the slow eccentric stuff in my first phase, I do do some um, isometrics in that block usually, um, because I think they are somewhat complementary. When I'm doing fast eccentric work, I wouldn't do, unless it was an example like that groin um, example, I wouldn't wouldn't uh, marry those two stimulus together because I think they're um, counterintuitive in my mind. And it, it, I might be wrong, but that's just how, I, how I'm justifying it to myself anyway. <laughs> no, that's cool. Interesting. One last thing on the eccentrics, yep. and this may be, this may be very much... Um, in your mind right now given the, the time of year that we're in coming to the summer around competition taper periods and how you'd adjust your training your eccentric focus training um during this time and, and leading up to to what's coming in the summer so so yeah good question i i typically um and it depends on the level of the athlete but one of the other nice things about eccentric training is there's the the, the period of detraining um it's reasonably robust in terms of detraining and so you you can detrain you know detrain for for a long period of time without really losing a hell of a lot of strength. Um, we do know that that there's in some of the the sort of ultrasound studies that if you um, remove the eccentric stimulus, you might lose fascicle length, sarcomeres and series, which may have a you know, and we're adding one plus one to get four here probably, but um, you may lose contractile speed as a result of that. So um, there's a couple of papers, and I, and I the name escapes me off the top of my head, but it might come to me, but. Um, we do know that you can do a minimum amount of eccentric work and maintain fascicle length. Uh, there's a couple of papers with a couple of Nordic studies with the Nordic hamstring stuff which sort of show that you can do, and I, I want to say something like eight contractions a week was enough to maintain, you know, it's two sets of four, one set of four on Monday, one set of four on Thursday, happy days, you, you, you're covered. So if there's something that I'm really concerned about, then we'll, we'll keep that in, but generally we'll, we'll remove um, the eccentric load a significant period of time out from from training. If we've got somebody that's really strong, I might remove it further out um, to try and elicit the sort of fibre type overshoot as well. Um, 
and get rid of any eccentric depression which you can get in terms of the damage and, and um, so um, but again it will vary between individuals the females I tend to keep it in a little bit later they recover more quickly um, and I'm, I'm being very generic here but um, keep it in a little bit later um, what some of our throwers we might do eight weeks before an, for a major comp when they've done no eccentric loading of any significance so they might have done their two times four a week on a couple of efforts but that'll be it um, so um, so yeah I, I think it, it's you've got to be careful in a competition period because it is damaging it, it can de be depressive um, and it might mess with your you know your proprioceptive stuff if you if you push the boat out too hard on it and and, and then that's um, yeah obviously a bad thing so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Angus. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on eccentric training programming, but also move into the acceleration principles side of the podcast as well. But like I say every week, if you haven't checked out the Pacey Performance Performance Staff Survey, where I surveyed 138 practitioners on their salary, their education, their experience, the number of internships, make sure you check it out on the website. It's a free download and you can get tons of information on what it's like out there in the world of strength and conditioning in professional football, professional soccer over here in the UK. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc, etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness and they're the same on Twitter. Just one thing that you mentioned there about levels of athlete. I'm just thinking people may listen to the last 35 minutes and go, I've got these under-17s yeah. girls who are yeah. brand new to the gym. I'm going to smash them with this. This sounds fantastic. We need to obviously need to be careful and, and hang back. Like, how, how does how does level change what how you think about this? Well, look, I, I think, as I said, eccentric is this very powerful stimulus, right? So... Um, it's kind of that whole rush to the end zone mentality, isn't it? Like, do, do you do you go, I've got all these tools in my toolkit, do I use them for my under-17-year-old girls that have never seen a gym in their life? 
or do I just go, I can go generic as hell. I can do three by 10, you know, squats, bench press and pull-ups and I probably get results for the next three years without having to worry about anything clever. And then I can spend all my energy coaching, technique, form, um, the skills of the sport, um, whatever else it is. And I'm, I'm, and maybe that's conservative, and maybe it's a, it's it's a dumb idea. I don't know, but I, I tend to think, well, keep these tools in your toolkit till you need them. Um, and, and like, so we, you know, there's a whole lots of things that are reasonably advanced. You can do electrical stimulation, you can do this eccentric stuff, and high speed eccentric stuff, and blah blah blah. But do you need to do them with the, the underage athlete? Um, because the last thing you want is somebody that has their peak of their career at 18. You know, that's that's kind of depressing. So so keep some of these things until they need them. And and you know, it's nice to see. People doing personal bests at 27, 28, you know, 29, 30, like, great. Um, is that, is, and I, you know, I tend to think, the other thing I would say is um, <clears throat> when somebody's um, strong enough, and and if there's, a, I mean, this is a hypothetical line of strong enough. And so, you know, some of the people I work with are leech hoppers. Let's say, let's say that's 180 kg bench press for, for a generic, easy, understanding exercise. And if, if you can bench 182 kilos, and that's your personal best. And then we do an eight-week taper where we do almost no lifting. Um, well, you're probably, you've fallen below the strong enough line. You're probably now benching 160 kilos because, yeah, your high-speed velocity might be good, but your your raw grunt is, is diminished. Too. Whereas if I take the guy, the elite guy that's got a 240k BGP bench press, I can do 10 weeks of, of ballistic high-speed stuff, and he's still above that. Um, he can still bench probably 200k eight weeks later. Um and so he's still well above his 180 kg strong enough line, uh, and I and I that's how I think of it. And, and um, so, so I think um, yeah, how you use it will depend on on what they bring. You know, you know give them what they need, Jerome. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's where that's the thing, isn't it? Like I, I went and saw some of Jerome stuff. I thought, wow, there's levels of um, you know, and you spend time with some of these guys that that are really good and. Um, you know, uh, I, I had I was lucky enough to have it. I had ninety minutes with with Dan Paff yesterday on on the on on a Zoom, and um, you know, there's this levels of mastery, aren't there? That the, these guys they inherently know how how to um, and you know, I'm certainly not there yet, and then that's something that I'm playing with and learning, and um, but it's a privilege to to interact with these guys and and um, you know, learn what what they see, and then try and um, steal some of that IP. Um, Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't have you here and and take up an hour of your time without chatting about acceleration, given the the athletes that you work with as well. And it's a question that I've asked a couple of people. It's interesting to get very different takes on maybe similar thoughts, or just get completely similar thoughts on a on a on a, on a similar question. Sorry, different yep. thoughts on on a similar question. And that's princi- principles of acceleration and where how you see it. And what you kind of live by when trying to develop acceleration, the athletes, the, the speed and power athletes that you work with. Yep. Um, so yeah, at the moment I don't I don't have a lot of athletes that I'm I'm working with in that space. I'll preface it by saying that. But that said, that's always been an area of interest of mine. So I, you know, and Bob's say background, it is one of these things that is, is pretty critical. So look, and I listened actually listened to Cal Dietz's um, presentation on your and his twenty meter thing, which is kind of interesting and. And I like some of the, the, the ideas in that and sort of, um, and, you know, he's obviously got his, you know, 5, 10, 20 met, you know, yards, I think he was doing maybe, but um, whatever it was. Um, uh, and looking at, okay, well, if they're good here, that this means is you know, isometric strength's good or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
quite interesting. And I, and I also like, um, you know, Samazino, JP Marin's um, stuff where they've got those, um, you know, you can map a power curve out from, from looking at, at an acceleration. Um, but, but I guess I would look at it even more basically than that in some ways that, you know, you're overcoming um, inertia, aren't you? It's, 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 so power to weight is this key factor. So power to weight is, you know, you need to develop power to weight. And then, uh, so I've started looking at, um, you know, you can, power to weight can be can be measured in a multitude of different ways. You know, like it can be measured from acceleration, arguably, but it could also be measured with, you know, you can jump on a watt bike and do peak power on a bike and watts per kilo, and you can measure watts per kilo from a jump, and you can have all that, you can, and you can do watts per kilo even in, in a drop jump. Um, there's a, so there's a whole lot of, there's a sort of continuum of, and I look at it as, you know, if you put them on a bike, uh, be it a, a watt bike or a ISO National Erg or whatever, you, and measure peak power, um, that's purely concentric. And so I could chuck you on a bike, Rob, and go, okay, hey, look, you've got this great watts per kilo. You're 20 watts per kilo. That's awesome um, on the bike. And then we do a drop jump and you're, you're completely mud. You know, you, you've got to, you know, let's say, I'm just being hypothetical here. No, um, no, you're not. No. It's not true. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, let's, let's say you drop jump. Okay, so we, we know your stretch shortening cycle stuff is, is not in the same league as your, your muscle power. Okay, so that might direct training that, okay, that's what we elicit. We, we, we focus on, we, we maintain your muscle power, we try and improve your elastic qualities. You might have shitty feet, you might be, you know, not um, having, uh, there might be some things that we can address there. Um, and so to me, that's that's one other, that's one part of it. I guess, um, and, I, and, I, and I like that sort of um, hardware, software analogy that, you know, I can, you, I can give you the software and the motor program to run this, but if you haven't got the hardware to do it, you can't do it. And so... I think these, we need to marry these things together, and like, you know, even things like that. Your, um, you know, there's a there's a, um, a Kugler Jansen paper, I think, from oh, I don't know, like say early two thousands, maybe, who basically showed that the more the greater the angle of lean you get in acceleration, uh, the more horizontal force you can apply, which is cool. Which, but but if you haven't got enough power to to get from, you know, when you're accelerating, you might go from you know forty five up to vertical. If you haven't got enough power, if your power reserve is so so minimal that you're using all your power just to stand up. Well, you can't. You can't get on an angle. So, um, so having that power reserve will then elicit the mechanics. You can, you know, the, the more power you have, you know, the more of a steeper angle you can, the more horizontal force you can apply, uh, and then you go to okay. Well, have you got that the the ankle mobility to hit these steep angles? And uh, so there's all these. It becomes there's all these steps of, of sort of an, an intricacy of what. Um, and if you haven't got the anchor mobility, you'll externally rotate at the feet and you'll collapse your, you know, you supinate your feet and you blah, 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 blah. And so you have to take care of all these little bits um, to, to, um, to, to, to sort of optimize, um, optimize your performance. Um, yeah, so look, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a succinct answer for you in terms of, hey, I do, this is what I do. I've got a million athletes and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm, it's, it's, Stuff that I listened to Cal's presentation with you, and I was like, okay, cool. You've got a million athletes coming through every week, and you you can get this population statistics of of this. Um, whereas I'm more of okay, who, what, who do I have in front of me? I've only got two people. What are we going to do? This guy's got this. This guy's got that. Um, okay, how do we address it? Um, but the basic principles are, you know, get the mobility, particularly through the ankles, uh, addressed. Um, have the power to weight. You know, be lean. Power to weight, you can't, you know, fat doesn't fly, you know, that, that whole, that, that's, um, and it's probably not particularly PC, but that's a reality, you know, there's, there's physics involved in this stuff, you, you don't want to be carrying around inert tissue in, in, in acceleration. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I would, I would look to um, address all the, all the bits and then, 
you know, try and put a put a program in place that that help um, find out where the where the weak spots were, maintain or and and or enhance that they're what they're good at. Everybody likes to be the the big dog at something, you know. So, and, and is that a testosterone primer? If you can come out and do two and a half thousand watts on the watt bike, well, happy days. You're you're you're, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Um, so let's keep that in. Keep fostering that, you know, um, that mentality that you're um, you're a beast on that. Um, okay, but we need to address your your feet a week, and we you know you can't apply that force in acceleration. So you're number one ranked in the in the pit powder weight on, on concentrically, but you're number ten ranked on a drop jump. Okay, well, uh, and then you're and you're number five ranked in a, in a twenty meter sprint. Okay, well these things kind of all make sense, doesn't it? Like um, you, you fill the holes, um, but mm-hmm. but keep the keep the the weapon a weapon. Well, I suppose would be the, the summary of that. So is there anything else that you, if you did have two athletes next to each other and build an acceleration, improve an acceleration was the, was the overall aim? Apart from the things that you've mentioned, is there anything specific that you would go into in terms of like a, a additional profiling that would give you a real sense yeah, of like, where you need to go with that next program? Yeah, well, one of the, I've just started playing with it. I've, I've actually just um, purchased a, um, a free lap setup, so, which is, been a bit of a um, bit of a game changer in as far as uh, the ease of, of using it. You know, like you probably all we'll probably all play with timing lights, and it takes you twenty minutes to set the bloody things up, and then the battery goes flat, and then then the there's a little bit of wind, it all falls over. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's, and it's you know you you know humans we're lazy, aren't we? We don't we don't want to spend twenty minutes setting up for something we're going to use for two minutes in the middle of a session. Um, and so the free lap has, has sort of allowed me to set the stuff up in, in t- you know, less than a minute, and I can and I run you know sled sprints for example in a in a uh, in a session. And I've been profiling athletes over time with um, you know we might use a 50k sled one week, 40k the next week, 30k, and then we end up getting a graph of what their the slope of what their and and without the, without the sled at all, and you get this um, graph of of their um, and the steepness of the graph in terms of how fast they can, you know, I've got a hammer thrower who can, she's still bloody fast towing 50 kilos, um, you know, and, and it's quite cool. It's like, it's violent, um, which is, which is, you know, it's impressive. And, um, but perhaps her, if you put it beside a sprinter, you know, and we've been, we've been joking about what, what weight could she beat the national hundred meter champion um, in a, in a 20 or 30 meter sprint? Well, what, what weight would be the, 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 the the transition and, and the slope of those so the slope of the graph is another way a nice way of profiling okay well maybe you need more force maybe you need more um you know speed or high high, high speed contractile stuff um to be to be used in, in your training so um yeah that and that's really just something i've been doing the last few months when i've had this new toy um in the in the gym that's um yeah it's it, and it's, it's, been, it's been a game changer just the ease of that of that use it's like oh geez like you all of a sudden you get this you know pretty hard data that is um uh, accessible every day, um, so mm-hmm. it's kind of cool. It's a really interesting one that. So working on sprints with with throwers, how much of a how much of a how much of that kind of work are you doing with that kind of population? I know uh, I know it's resisted sprints, yeah. but just that that oh, is, is a general stimulus for these these throwers. Yeah, I, I think I think it's still a good general stimulus. I think that they um and they're fast. Throwers are fast, like fast mm-hmm. over twenty meters, like. You get in front of one of these guys. Geez, I wouldn't want to tackle that. Like they are quick. Um, they're big and quick. Um, so I look, you know, throwing is all about release velocity uh, on all the throws. Um, and if you can't generate high speed force, um, 
you're not going to be a very good thrower. Uh, so, yeah, look, I think it's an important part for, for all of them, all the throwers. Um, you know, because I've got javelin throwers, you know, hammer throwers, shot putters, um, they all have the same characteristics, and you know, in, in terms of the need for high-speed power. So, yeah, it's a nice generic, um, and it's fun. Like, there's, you know, we, we, you, can, you can handicap it on weight or on, you know, inertia, um, you know, how much momentum you're generating. Um, you know, obviously, the, <clears throat> the 130 or 140 kilo shot putter might not be as fast as the um, 90 kilo javelin thrower, but they generate more momentum. So then you, you can make all these, you know, bragging rights for different parts of it. And, um, yeah, it just makes it fun. Um, so, yeah, I think that stuff's um, worth investigating for sure. Mm-hmm. One last thing before I let you go, I think it'll be a really interesting one because I think it's a it's an area of our industry that has gone mental over the last 24 months and that's speed training for team sport athletes and coming from your environment and just carry on this topic of acceleration and we can we can move that out to, to max velocity as well but what should team sport athletes or team sport coaches be looking to take from your environment and implementing with with their athletes and, and maybe more importantly what shouldn't they yeah. what should they leave to, to to you guys to yeah to uh to excel in and yeah, so that's that's my point. And and the only reason I say that is, like I said at the start, this this like obsession with with team sport speed. Um, so I'm just interested to get your thoughts. Look, a really good question. I, I kind of um, yeah, I, and I guess you can flip around the other way too. What can sprinters learn from team sport athletes? Because I think there yeah, are there, there are things that go both ways. Um, I'd love to I'd love to know that as well. Uh, yeah, later so, in, in this in this question. Yeah. Yeah. So so look, I think. Um, on that, like, there's a quote. I think it was Stu McMillan who said from from Altus who said something like, "You need to know what the rules are before you before you break them." Um, and so, yeah, in terms of team sport, I, think, I don't think there's anything wrong with them learning traditional sprint mechanics, um, having the range of motion, developing the power to weight, um, you know, accelerating angle of lean and all that sort of stuff. That said, you know, you're not going to run very far with a rugby ball in your hand with your head down, uh, not knowing who's in front of you. Um, so, so some of those things obviously. Uh, are different and, and you know like you, you look at team sporters and they typically particularly in the, in the sort of more combative team sports you know um the rugby's the, the american football you know, rugby league etc um you know there's a level of tension and getting ready for impact um that they that they have and they, they might not have that sort of thoracic mobility and all those sort of beautiful things you see in a very elegant um you know uh sprinter um, and there's a good reason for that because they don't want to get their head taken off. And, um, <laughs> and so you're probably not going to change all those things in the short term. But yeah, I think that, that, that line of stews, um, know the rules are before you break them and then, and then take them into that, into that sort of, um, into that context. So, um, you know, obviously change your direction and all these other things are, are equally as important as, as acceleration, um, in, in the team sport. So, um, I kind of I'm going to say flipping the the coin a little bit. I've I've been, um, I've had a bit of an obsession in the last um, probably since COVID hit. Really, on um, I've been pursuing this the spinal engine idea that um, Grakovetsky and Co. Um, sort of promoted in the eighties and nineties that that the trunk is part of this um, part of the engine for the for the for locomotion, um, and I I would say that. Um, we get um, people that get too linear and too um, one-directional, if you like, um, 
in the sprint context, and, and you know, we've got we're all it's people that are guilty of you know coaching people to be robots, whereas the body actually wants to do this. You know, we have you know the, the shoulders and hips are oscillating equally and opposite to each other, and you know, there's there's a there's an rotation and a, and a lateral flexion that occurs, and and there this whole concept of the spinal engine. And um, I would say that team sporters they do all this three dimensional um, movement. Okay, they and they're running, they're changing direction, and they, you know, they, they get strong in all these different positions. And sometimes you can get some brutal team sporters that are brutal accelerators. They can come out and they can beat up on the sprinters for the first 20 metres. Um, and particularly these ones that are sprinters that have just done this really linear stuff. And and so, yeah, I, I like the idea of being um, three-dimensionally prepared uh, because I think the spine, and I... And I from you know, I've been doing quite a bit of reading and thinking in this space, and I think you know there is something in this whole concept of a spinal engine, um, and that it does contribute to ground force, and it does contribute to axial rotation of the pelvis, um, and I think that, that that's something that um, perhaps your your three D athletes in the team sport environment will have um, inherently, and you know as as do the throwers who who train rotationally all the time, they train lateral flexion, they train um, you know. Uh, a lot of rotation work both directions. Um, so sometimes, and in an acceleration, you see the best sprinters in the world. Uh, it's boom, 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 and an acceleration in the head over foot, lateral flexion, rebounding out of that lateral flexion. That's adding to ground force, and it's not something that we're taught. In most cases, it's not something that we, we talk about. But it's becoming it's becoming popularised. There's a few people that have that have gone down that road, um, and it's certainly something which I've, I've I've spent a bit of time thinking about in the last you know year. Um, so yeah, I think we we have some of those team sports that do that inherently. You know, the, the rotational med balls, the different movements. Um, and there's a million, you know, we've got a million exercises now that are trying to address that. Um, but I think the team sport athletes will have a lot more of that than than the traditionally trained um, straight line athlete. And so yeah, that you can bring that back, and you might have a better straight line athlete too. Yeah. That was going to be my next question around how does that actually affect your coaching of of that for, for, for both of both sets the, the team sport athlete and the, the sprinter. Yeah, so, so so the sprinter like um we've got I've got a um got a really good New Zealand young sprinter at the moment who's 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 now moving who's gonna be moving up to where I am in the next little while. Um and we'll bring in a lot of that um multi directional rotational stuff in his preparation. Um so yeah I, I think there are there is a lot of um I mean yeah we've got heaps of different exercises that we're using in that space now. Um can you give us a few examples, Angus? Yeah, so uh, yeah, like this. Um, oh, where do we start? So a lot, lot of the the, the the flywheel stuff. Yeah, we do do it. It's not it's not just like this. You, you'll do it like a contralateral um, row with other leg forward. We've we've designed a couple of. Um, uh, we've got a reverse hyper machine that you can do a you can do single leg and you can do contralateral rowing while you're doing the reverse hyper. Um, so you're doing you know the glute lat that sort of glute lat synergy. Um, across sides um you can do squats you know a rotating squat you know those those lip and off squats um um that, that, that actually dan dan have sent me some stuff on that the other day and it's like oh that's a good idea yeah um you can do um you know obviously there's a million different rotational med ball stuff we can do um med ball sort of wall throws med ball wall throws where you bound out of it and catch it on that on that um you know you throw it catch on one leg drive it into the wall um we're doing. We've done. What else have we done? Um, you know those scorpions, those prone scorpions. Um, when you lie, yes. 
So you're doing those, but with a band on your on your ankle. So you're having to um, generate um, rotation okay. about with banded. Um, yeah, look, there's, there's there's heaps of different ways. You, I mean, and that's you know, that's just off the top of my head. But the, you know, your your imagination is is one. And and, and you know, uh, there's a there's a line, isn't there, between crazy, this is going to look really cool on Instagram, and um, hey, I've got a rationale for it. Um, and and you know, like there's a lot of cool. I I look at a lot of um, people's Instagram pages and. Um, you know, I steal ideas and or think that's just rubbish. What you know, there's a, there's a, there's a variation, isn't there, between? But 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 some sometimes um, and sometimes some of these things work without people even knowing why they work. Um, and it, it, you know, your lens changes on different things, doesn't it? As you develop IP and you you put some pieces together, that ah, oh, cool. Um, so. Yeah, there's a few ways. That's totally crazy, but there's a little bit of something totally. there that yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I can see that, and in this context, that makes sense. Not sure for what they're saying whether that makes sense, but look, that's not completely dumb. Um, and look, I guess in our in our context, we have a um, we're, I mean, in a state funded institution, we have all these silos of um, therapists, you know, doctors, coaches, you know, strength conditioning, physiologists, uh, blah blah blah. And we get a little bit siloed, and, and as I said, I you know I haven't always fitted in one of those boxes all that neatly, which has probably been advantageous for me, I, I reckon. Um, but yeah, look, um, you know, some people say, "Oh, that's contraindicated," and so okay, why is it contraindicated? And then, then you know that because of, oh well, you know the the lumbar spine is not supposed to rotate, and then you you go to the literature and you go, well, the lumbar spine does actually rotate, like not as much as thoracic, but nearly as much, and we've been, and we've just been told this thing that oh you can't have rotation. Um, you know, well, really, where's that written in stone? You know, like so you go, you got to go back to the literature sometimes and and see that these things, um, these these truths are not quite, you know, what they've been made out to be sometimes. And um, yeah, look, um, yeah, it's a, it's just an interesting thing when you when you're playing with, you know, you, obviously you don't want to break an athlete, but you need to give them what they need as well. And so finding that that, that middle ground, and you know, we don't always get it right. Um, but you know, we try to minimise, try to minimise the risk. Obviously, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I still try to keep active enough so I can get anything myself on on most of these things. Um, and if somebody's going to break it, may as well be me, not not the people you try it on. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I said I'd keep you to, to the hour, and I'm I'm going to try my best to, to do that. But Angus, where can people find out a little bit more about you, research wise? Um, you know, what you got going over there? Where's where's the best place to to keep up to date? Yeah. I, I, I have, I've got a Twitter account, um, so it's Angus Ross NZ, I think it is. Uh, I don't, I'm not particularly active on social media. Um, look, I'm happy that if people want to email me, um, I'm happy to, you know, you can find my email through High Performance Sport New Zealand. It's pretty easy to find. Um, yeah, and if, you, if I don't reply, email me again because I'm probably just busy. Um, and, yeah, um, but, I, yeah, I'm, 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 not, um, I'm not trying to be a... a you know, big on social media because it's not something that um, I'm, I've got a great job that I can do stuff I like doing and I don't need to be selling anything, I suppose. Um, but if people have questions or, or about like, my bounce ideas, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always keen to learn stuff, um, share ideas. And, you know, if you ask me a question, well, it probably makes me think about it and we probably both learn something in the end. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, the person answering the question actually learns more than the person asking it because that I had to put it in context. And so look, um, yeah, I'm happy to um, chat in that space with anybody. Um, so, but if, as I said, if I don't reply, it's not because I'm being a dick, it's because I just haven't got around to it. Um, 
No, that's very kind of you. I'm sure people can dig that email out if they uh, if they want to ask you a question or get yeah. some discussion going or whatever that may be. Yeah. But no, cool. Angus, thank you very much. Really do appreciate it. Thank you for getting to the office early doors and, and making time to uh, to have a chat. So really appreciate it. Hang no around, have a little chat after, but um, yeah, we'll, cool. we'll chat soon. Thank you again. Yeah, sounds good. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 343 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to you for tuning in and also huge thanks to Angus for giving up his time and giving us a real insight into his views and principles around eccentric training. So big thanks to our sponsors for this episode today, Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really, really do appreciate their support. So you've got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player, and I will chat to you next week. <laughs>